And it turns out the word, the prefix cosmos means beauty. And it's really true. If you look at the face or the beautiful face that the universe presents to us, that uh, is sort of, you know, encapsulated by, you know, this great thing that we get to do and that each person, you know, I have a friend uh, here, a pretty famous uh, guy that I met, Deepak Chopra. And he says things and he writes books called, you know, you are the universe. <laughs> and, and yeah, I can't really get into all, all of what he says, but I, I can understand where he's coming from in some, to some capacity. And he's very interested in real science. And when we had a conversation about this and, and just how the fact is that in these little babies' brains, there are the same number of, you know, neural connections and, and, and pathways as there are stars or galaxies in the universe. Welcome to the Gratitude Podcast on www.georgeandbenta.com, where you'll hear a new story each week that will inspire more gratitude in your own life. Our mission is to inspire 100,000 people to discover how to feel gratitude and live a happy life through the amazing life stories of our successful guests and their actionable tips. And now, the host of our podcast, George and Benta. Hi, Gratitude Seeker. Welcome to a new episode of the Gratitude Podcast. Today with me, I have Dr. Brian Keating. He is a professor of physics and astronomy at the Center for Astrophysics and Space Science Sciences in the Department of Physics at the University. He is the author of the book Losing the Nobel Prize, published in 2018. A book for those who haven't won a Nobel Prize or that haven't won their own person. Welcome, Brian. Thank you, Georgian. It's a pleasure to be with you. My pleasure as well. So let us know a little bit more about what you're actually doing and um, let our listeners know more about you that I failed to uh, mention. Well, you did a good job. I'm very grateful. Uh, the main focus of my life is, uh, at work at least, is as a cosmologist, which is a, um, a scientist that studies the origin and the evolution of the universe and applies the laws of physics, the laws of nature, to studying the biggest objects in the universe. And my day job is really to, do, uh, to teach. I teach students. I teach um, the public. And I use telescopes that myself and my students and colleagues around the world on all seven continents are producing to view uh, information that is otherwise invisible to the human eye. And from that perspective, we gain a new, a new vantage point on the cosmos. So it's a little different than someone like Stephen Hawking, who uh, the late, great Stephen Hawking, who would... Uh, explored the universe through the, through the lens of a, a theoretician, somebody who thinks about new laws, new objects that might exist. My job is to go out there and prove Stephen Hawking and others like him wrong <laughs> most <laughs> of the time. And, uh, or, you know, sometimes you get to prove uh, different things correct. But, uh, but mainly my, my job is to keep, uh, keep people honest about what the scientific method is and, and how we can apply it to understand more about the beautiful universe we live in. Yeah, that's wonderful. And I think it's something innate in all of us, the, the, the willingness and the curiosity to explore, to find 
where we came from and where we're going. And I think um, it's it's an amazing and a fascinating work uh, finding these these things out and exploring them because I think there is a lot more to explore and we know so little and have so much to explore. What's what's your take on this? Yeah, that's actually exactly correct as I see it. We have uh, only scratched the surface of the universe. And the reason for that is because uh, of the speed of light. So Einstein uh, came up with a theory of relativity that said that light can travel the fastest of any entity in the universe, but it has a finite speed, which means that you know, you and I talking across the planet right now via satellite, which is transmitting radio waves at some point, or fiber optics uh, through the ocean, the, uh, the, the speed of our communication has an upper limit. It can't go any faster than the speed of light. We say 186,000 miles per second or 300,000 kilometers per second. It's not only a good idea, it's the law. And in our case, uh, we use that, we use that phenomenon as a time machine. So all telescopes are time machines. And in fact, you will, and your listeners will be interested to know that you actually have a telescope permanently with you, or hopefully two telescopes in your head at all times. And those are your eyes. And, you know, if you're like me, they're mostly focused on, on the iPhone. But uh, <laughs> when you look up at the night sky, you're seeing objects that are perhaps, you know, thousands of light years away. In other words, light has been traveling from those distant objects at 300,000 kilometers per second. And it's been traveling for a thousand years. If you see certain uh, of the brightest stars, even it could be, it could be shorter, similar, the dimmer stars are farther away. And because of that, you're really looking back in time. And you don't know if there's another alien species of, of, uh, uh, of astronomers, you know, maybe there's an astronomer named Benton Georgian, and he's looking at you uh, from another constellation, or that you're looking up and you're seeing the last remnants of a civilization that once lived and is now dead because it took so long for the light to reach your eyes. And so I think these things inspire human beings to think about their place in the universe. And that's part of the reason why I'm excited to be here because it's it's such a it's such a wonderful profession to be able to think about these massive issues and awe inspiration and be paid to do it um, by uh, by you know for what I what I would do for free and that that I think is the greatest gift that I have and the thing that I'm most appreciative of is I get to study these things and it's part of my job. <laughs> That's amazing and indeed it's it's a wonderful feeling to do what you love and to be paid for it. And uh, I was actually thinking about the night sky and what you were just saying. Uh, for instance, when I was by the seaside, I was able on a field. I was able to see at, in at night, uh, like I had the really um, big view. Like I was able to see the fact that I am on Earth because usually we don't realize the fact that uh, we are on the planet. Somehow it's it's uh we're just here we we don't look at the sky too much and uh see that we are part of something bigger yeah. and i'm wondering how that does this uh research that you're doing and uh, the work that you're doing influence you 
in seeing us as a species and in uh, the gratitude that you feel? Yeah, it's a very good question. So what I do in my, in my job, as I said, as a, as a teacher, as a professor, and I believe in Russian, one of my friends told me, you, you probably know Russian better than I do, but the word scientist kind of translates into English as a person who was taught. I don't know if you know if that's correct or not. I, I really don't know Russian, unfortunately. Yeah. Okay, good, good, because maybe I'm wrong. But, but I do believe <laughs> that that is the correct um, uh, way to think of the word scientist. And it really brings up the fact that to be a scientist, you had to have been taught by somebody else. And it also means that you have to be a teacher too, right? Because you can't just take from other people and not give back. And furthermore, as you probably have realized in your life, when you teach something to somebody else, maybe it's your client, maybe it's a family member, you actually learn whatever you're teaching better than you did before. And so the teaching process is an act of love. It's an act of, of, uh, of, of generosity, both for the student that you're teaching and for yourself. And it's one of the few things that the more you do it, the more you give it away, the more you get. <laughs> and I, I love that about what I get to do as a, as a teacher, as a scientist. <clears throat> and, so, um, and so from that perspective, I really do believe, as you say, that everybody has an innate curiosity about science. You know, here, you're in Europe, I'm here in America. You know, every day people are fighting about politics. It doesn't matter where you live in the world, except Antarctica, where I've been twice. <laughs> uh, you know, there's no government down there, and it's pretty nice. Um, <laughs> uh, and, uh, and I think that's great. And so, uh, you know, from the perspective of, of what we do as scientists, we don't have any political attachment, at least in astronomy. I always say there's no, there's no in our country, we have Republicans and Democrats, you know. Um, and and uh, I always say there's no Republican constellation, there's no <laughs> Democratic comet, you know, floating around in space. You know, so you could, and maybe in the UK, Tory, Labour, whatever. There, there's nothing about astronomy that's political. And you know, sometimes people try to make it political, and I stay away from that. So I'm grateful that it becomes a safe haven, a refuge a place where you can go to get away and think about the things that really make us human. And, and maybe if, if you're interested in talk about my work here in San Diego, we have founded a center for uh, the study of human imagination and it's named after oh. Sir Arthur C. Clarke. And in fact, I run a podcast there and it's called Into the Impossible. And, and uh, if your listeners are interested in subscribing, you can go to imagination.ucsd.edu. And we have, I get to interview the brightest men and women on the whole planet. And I get to ask them questions about the nature of curiosity, as you brought up, and what it means to be a human being, I believe, is dependent on curiosity, which is in, unique in human beings. Not that my dog, you know, I have, you know, when I have my dog, and he's curious, where did I drop that piece of cheese? You know, <laughs> he wants to eat it. I don't think that's the same thing. But instead, for the curiosity I'm talking about, it's really uncovering new mysteries about the universe uh, or about the microbiome or the genome or things like that. And that's a unique aspect of human beings that is not very different from the creative impulse of an artist, of a poet, 
of a sculptor. And we explore what is the difference and what are the similarities. And furthermore, as you know, I already told you about how I love to teach. You know, can you teach someone to have more imagination? It's a very difficult question and it's very exciting to think about how do you teach someone to be curious? And I have some ideas about that. Mm, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. And I, I was thinking about um, how you see life. Like we we see it from like from the knowledge that we from the perspective of the knowledge that we we have. Um, you have a, a depth of knowledge that that is beyond what uh, we have the most of the people how how do you see life knowing for instance things about how the universe um, was created and uh, where it's going how do you see life in this larger perspective yeah so what's so amazing to me is how interconnected the universe is and by that i mean that we are living on a planet And the planet's kind of like a spaceship going through space. And we're in orbit around a huge nuclear reactor called the sun. And that sun produces enough light for, um, for the earth to maintain a comfortable temperature. And that temperature is regulated by the fact that the earth spins around once a day. And so half the day it can be warm and then it has enough chance for the night to cool off and, and radiate back into space. Otherwise, we would be uh, either permanently frozen or permanently boiling. And the Earth is just at the right distance and, and all these wonderful magical alignments. And, you know, while it's beautiful to think about it, we also think two things. One, we want to know why, if there's any reason to expect why we are at this fortuitous place in the universe, how did that happen? And what is necessary for life to exist? And then two, I think another thing that we're very uh, conscious of and would like to understand is, is there other life in the universe? And by that life, I don't mean, you know, if we found that there's some mold on uh, one of Jupiter's moons, I think that would be very interesting, very exciting, very cool. But it would be dwarfed in, in significance by finding a message from an interstellar civilization that we can't even come into contact with. And so the question of, are we alone in the cosmos? Are there aliens, other civilizations out there in the cosmos? And at first glance, if you've ever looked up in those dark nights by the sea, as you talk about, and you look up and you see the Milky Way galaxy, it just looks like this splotch of milk, you know, kind of poured on the heavens. And that comes from the incalculable number, number of stars that really make up the Milky Way galaxy, which is a a pan-shaped, you know, disk galaxy. And it's one of hundreds of billions of other galaxies. And within our galaxy, we know that there's a hundred billion stars or more. And within each one of those stars, uh, there may be a solar system surrounding it with, say, 10 planets. So if you go through the mathematics of it, it's not that complicated. There's about a possible, maybe there's a trillion planets in our galaxy alone, a trillion, one with 12 zeros. And then, uh, and then maybe there's another trillion galaxies in the universe that have existed since the beginning of time, uh, 13 billion, 800 million years ago. And then, so you take a trillion and you multiply by a trillion and you get a trillion trillion and that, you know, that's a one twenty-four zeros. 
and uh, and and you really the human mind can't really comprehend such things. Exactly, I have the same sensation. <laughs> yeah, and so and so then you might think, well, it's pretty likely that there's other other civilizations out there, right? There's huge numbers of astronomical objects. I just did a, a, a one with you know twenty four zeros following it. Just just that's where the name astronomical numbers come from. But then you start to think, well, you know, maybe there's uh, eight different things that go into the, um, that led to the creation of you and me having this conversation over the internet. In the history of the whole universe, you had to have a big bang, and the universe had to get to a certain age, the universe had to be made of certain properties, it has to have um, uh, the ability uh, at some point for life to form from pure chemicals, right? That would have had to happen. And then those chemicals would have had to assemble into kind of, you know, human or pre-human ancestors. Then those pre-human ancestors must have evolved according to natural selection and Darwinian evolution. And then those must have evolved into mammals. And then a meteor had to come and kill the dinosaurs <laughs> that were going to eat the mammals so that we could become the apex species on Earth. And then there had to be, uh, you know, ability for our brains to get big enough to have enough um, neural capability to have conversation. And then, uh, and then we had to have consciousness. And then we had to create technology. And then finally, you and I could get together today. Okay, so the, it's like eight, eight different steps. Now, there's actually probably a billion steps. But let's just say there's eight, um, you know, eight or more steps. Uh, and now let's say the probability of each one of those things happening, the meteor killing the dinosaurs, you know, the, the life coming from nothing into forming conscious mammal, et cetera, et cetera. Let's say each one of those eight events had a probability of one in a thousand of being successful. Okay. So uh, I'll save you the math, but if you go through the math and you, and you have eight things and they each have a one part in a thousand chance of occurring, that comes out to be the same number except in the denominator. In other words, the probability of that is one divided by a trillion trillion. <laughs> so now you start thinking about that. That means you take the total number of planets and, and so forth uh, that could be in the entire observable universe and then you divide by the probability that of all the probabilities it took for us to have this conversation, and you get you know a number that could be much much smaller than one percent. It could be almost zero. And then I think, you know, I think that really makes me have a sense of gratitude, right? That all those things, if you look back in the history of the universe, really conspired in such a way for us, you know, you know, not not being completely cute about it. But it all, all those things, if any one of them had gone wrong, we wouldn't be having this conversation uh, about, uh, about how the universe uh, became, became you know, possible for us to be here and exist. Wow, that's amazing. That's amazing. And it's, it's so interesting how it actually um, matches with uh, the, the spiritual perspective. Like, you know, that... Um, in spirituality, people talk a lot about the universe and, for instance, synchronicity. By the way, do you believe in synchronicity? Uh, I don't necessarily believe in it, but then again, I don't really know. That's not really my field of expertise. But the little that I do know about it, I, I don't have the greatest scientific confidence in. Mm -hmm. Because <clears throat> what, what you just described uh, seems to me like it has a lot to do with 
synchronicity with the fact that from a scientific standpoint, many things had to uh, work out and to work together for this moment to happen. Mm-hmm. And I think it's it's a beautiful and an interesting uh, parallel between uh, the two uh, ways of seeing the world and and the universe. And I think there is there is a connection between everything, and that's the universe actually is this right? It's everything mm-hmm. is connected in the universe. Yeah, there is a certain uh, d- a deep connection between how the universe is organized and and the principles behind it, and the question of whether or not there's a teleological or there's a purpose for why this is, is the case. Of course, brings up you know no- notions as you say, spirituality, a god, etc., which you know most cosmologists, most scientists don't like to talk about, um, and yet I think it's a perfectly natural. Um, uh, <clears throat> you know, kind of consequence to, to, you know, be prepared to talk about. So, uh, you know, I think, I think these are the things that make us human beings. And, and so it's natural that cosmologists are also human beings. They're not just these dispassionate computers. So I, I don't believe that there's a, um, uh, that there's should be a separation between the two, but you know, it's important to make sure that you are clear when you discuss which which kind of domain you're in. Are you speaking purely scientifically? Are you speaking metaphysically or philosophically? And and these are things that that you know I'm happy to discuss. But but most cosmologists aren't super interested in in kind of the metaphysical or philosophical ramifications of what they do. Uh, they just like solving the puzzle that is the greatest mystery, which is the universe. Yeah, that, that's amazing, and I think it's it's so important, and it balances things out. Like people that uh, might be might believe too much in the in the metaphysical, um, and the, the people like you that are actually studying this in a scientific uh, way and uh, taking into consideration the facts. And by the way, if we think about the facts. I know that you're also studying the evolution of the universe. Yes. Where are we going? Where is this starship going? Where do you see life in, in the future? Yeah, what's so, uh, what's so amazing to think about is how the universe <clears throat> is, uh, is on very human time scales, basically constant. There's no change that is discernible over human time scales. Uh, in terms of the planet, uh, more or less, um, in terms of the sun, in terms of most anything that you can see. In fact, the word for planet, the word planet in Greek, this I know for sure, so not like my Russian, but but I know for sure the word planet in Greek means wanderer. And so it's defined by what it does. In other words, it moves in the sky, unlike the stars. And that was, uh, that was a, you know, kind of the distinguishing characteristic. And in some sense, it still is. The universe, the only dynamic aspects of the universe that we could see for thousands of years were the planets and the moon, and, uh, and it looked like they, they were all centered on the Earth, and in fact, that they were in motion, and even the sun was in motion around the Earth. Of course, in, in the 1600s and 1500s with Copernicus and Galileo and Kepler and so forth, we learned that the Earth is going around the sun. 
<clears throat> and moreover, that there's many other objects in the universe, the stars that we think of as glued, or the ancients thought of as kind of glued onto the celestial sphere that would then rotate around the Earth. Now we know that actually they're in motion around the center of the galaxy. They're not in motion around the Earth. They're not in motion around the, the sun. They're, uh, the sun, instead, is in motion around the galaxy. So the Earth is rotating around its axis. It's rotating around the sun. The sun is rotating around the center of the galaxy. And the galaxy is, is moving through uh, intergalactic space at, at potentially very large speeds. And, and on those speeds, it's, it's attracted not by the force of centrifugal motion or rotational motion, but it's attracted to other galaxies, which are themselves in motion and which themselves have stars within them, et cetera. Now, what we've noticed since 1929 or so when Edwin Hubble and Vesto Slipher uh, observed uh, that the universe was seemed to be expanding, that the uh, galaxies were all on very large scales moving away from one another, that they weren't able to, to claim anymore that the universe was static. That even if you believe the Earth was in motion, the Sun was in motion, etc., now you had to believe that all the galaxies in the universe are moving away from every other galaxy, more or less. There's a couple that are moving close to us via gravity, but besides that, all these galaxies are rushing apart, and some are rushing apart near the speed of light or beyond. And so the question that's natural is, you know, what is going to happen in the future to these galaxies as they rush apart? And what we learned in 1998 was that the rate at which these galaxies are moving away from one another is changing, and it's getting faster over time. So it's like in the car, you push on the accelerator pedal, you go faster, and your speed gets faster too. That's what acceleration is. Well, our universe's galaxies are expanding and accelerating as well. And the question is, what will happen long in the future to the universe? And it's clear in the past, the universe was hotter, you know, more compact, more dense, <clears throat> and uh, younger. <clears throat> and in the future, the cosmos may, you know, essentially rip apart where the acceleration takes place at such a large rate that even the planets, even the, the molecules, even the atoms will eventually explode apart from one another because of this mysterious acceleration of energy caused by this uh, phenomenon called dark energy uh, that produces this acceleration. Now, I always, you know, warn my, uh, you know, listeners or your listeners that, you know, this is not going to happen for, you know, potentially a trillion years. So, you know, keep paying your taxes out there. <laughs> That's a good one. That's a good one. Yeah, indeed. Uh, but I think what this tells us is that the the moment is now to to enjoy life, to appreciate it, and to uh, to see the universe as it is, and to enjoy its beauty, to find out more about uh, what it's about, and who we are, and how how small we are actually in in this immense universe. Yeah, I, I think it's um, it's quite an interesting perspective to to know and to see from from above what who we are actually and as a species and as a solar system it's it's fascinating and yeah i think it's it's beautiful and and important work but i also wanted to to ask you if you're uh, teaching your students to pay attention to some things like to appreciate some things 
uh, when it comes to studying uh, astrophysics? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> uh, yeah, so I think that there is no greater uh, act that one can do as a teacher than to share in the learning process with my students. And as I say, that is sort of an act of love. And, and just like with someone that you love, you get something back in return, that, that feeling of, of being capable of love and being loved, et cetera. Obviously, platonically, this is not, nothing more. Uh, but in the case of the students, I want them to appreciate the opportunity that they have and the unique op opportunities that they have. And, and that, that also means taking advantage of when they live in time, that we are now able to not just think about the universe as people did for thousands of years, but they're actually able to build stuff to contribute to the new creation of knowledge like never before. And so what I try to do is, is really stimulate their curiosity. And when you, uh, I don't know if you are into like puzzles or Rubik's cubes, things like that, and you, you solve a puzzle, uh, you don't throw away the Rubik's cube, right? I mean, and my kids do this and, and they keep doing it. Uh, whenever they solve it, they, like, well, they want to go back and do it again. <laughs> and that's because every time you solve a puzzle, you get a taste of the original excitement of doing it for the first time. And in science, there's an infinite number of puzzles to, to solve. And each scientist is just like one link in a chain that connects the, the past when things were uncertain and unclear, imprecise. And they get to play a role and create as a requirement to get their PhD, their doctorate. They have to create something brand new that has never existed in the history of the universe. Wow. That's such an opportunity and such a beautiful way to, to explore the mysteries of the world and to, to appreciate the, the endless possibilities that we have as human beings in our time i think that that's that's really fascinating and yeah i think uh it's it's great that we live in such days and that we're able to do so many amazing things and uh, yeah but getting a little bit back on on earth <laughs> yeah on on being human um what are the things that uh, this research got you to um, be become more grateful, like to appreciate more in your own life. Like I know, for instance, that you've recently, well, let's say, uh, almost recently had uh, uh, some babies. And yeah. uh, how do you see... The, the, your newborns, like new life on earth and knowing uh, about the, the actual um, time yeah. when, when the universe was born. Yeah, well, it's, it's always exciting, you know, when a new life comes into the world. And I always say with my kids that um, I'm grateful because they give me a lot of experience with dark matter. Uh, they produce dark matter in their diapers, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I get to uh, experience that directly. But it's actually, you know, it's it's very interesting when I uh, when I think about the word. This is another, you know, you might think I'm a I'm a linguist or something, but I love thinking about the meanings of words. And and you ever heard of, or in America at least, we have these people called cosmetologists, and they yeah, they're no. people, that, yeah, that do haircuts and makeup, and you know. Uh, if you've ever seen a picture of me, you know I'm not super skilled in that area. 
But, uh, but at any rate, the word cosm cosmetologist and the word cosmologist share the prefix cosmos. And I started to wonder, well, why is that? What is the reason the hair cutting and, and, and it turns out the word, the prefix cosmos means beauty. And it's really true. If you look at the face or the beautiful face that the universe presents to us, that uh, is sort of, you know, encapsulated by, you know, with this great thing that we get to do and that each person, you know, I have a friend uh, here, a pretty famous uh, guy that I met, Deepak Chopra. And he says things and he writes books called, you know, you are the universe. <laughs> and, and yeah, I can't really get into all, all of what he says, but I, I can understand where he's coming from in some, to some capacity. And he's very interested in real science. And when we had a conversation about this and, and just how the fact is that in these little babies' brains, there are the same number of, you know, neural connections and, and, and pathways as there are wow. in our galaxy, our universe. And, uh, you know, he thinks there's some deep meaning behind it. Uh, you know, it could be a coincidence. Maybe it's not. Maybe once you get to re reach a certain point in complexity, you start to take on these structures. But I looked into it and just to see how intricate the universe is. And the more you do that, the more likely you are to feel gratitude. Because just as with, you know, kind of the miracles I talked about, these eight separate miracles that could not have happened with 99.9% .9 probability, each one, and then you multiply them all together and somehow you get a universe where we're having this conversation. <laughs> so I think having that perception, especially with children, especially with students, and everyone can be a, you know, not everyone can be a parent maybe, but everyone could be a teacher. And uh, one of the sayings I hate the most uh, came from a Nobel Prize winner named George Bernard Shaw. And he said, those who can't do, teach. It was meant to, you know, be a negative kind of insult to teachers, but, or maybe it was. But, but in any case, I take it completely the opposite uh, argument that the best teachers are the ones who did the most and know and understand the most so that as uh, one of the one of the ways i think when i teach my my children and uh and i teach my students that's beautiful and yeah definitely i think the 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 idea of um beauty and universe and uh what you just said like this comparison is is really beautiful and i I didn't think about it, and uh, I think it's something very important for us to to see and to think about when when we think about the universe. That it's beautiful, and uh, it's actually in its in its name somehow. And um, well, my my last question is uh, regarding your book, uh, yeah. the Nobel Prize. Do you have a message for? those of us who have lost their own Nobel Prize in, in their own way. Yeah. It's, um, it's interesting because I realized in writing the book that not everyone actually will lose a Nobel Prize or lose an Oscar or something like that, but, but it is very uncommon, and to phrase it another way, to win a Nobel Prize or to win an Oscar or to win you know, Best Podcast of the Year. And the, the question I start to analyze for myself is, what is the value of, of striving, of attempting to win, of discipline and trying to achieve something, uh, when you know there's a very small chance of actually achieving the highest goal? You know, in America, we have baseball, 
and 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 football, American football, and you know, every year there's one team that wins, and there's thirty plus teams that lose, and so you know, just the raw odds are you know three percent that you're going to win, basically three point three percent, and so uh, so the and the probability once you do win Super Bowl or or the World Series. Uh, that you're going to do it again and again and again. It's so small. And, and, that, uh, and certainly with the Nobel Prize, you know, there's only one person in human history who's won it twice in physics. And uh, out of 200 plus people, <clears throat> and most of those are men and, and uh, Europeans or, or Americans and, and, uh, and Asians. And the question of how did that actually uh, change them once they did win? And, and I came to learn, you know, from kind of sorrowful stories that, a lot of people it impacted their lives in a negative way, just in terms of taking them away from the things that they love most doing, which is science, and that they then became victim to being on panels and committees and board meetings and all the things that weren't doing the science that they loved so much that inspired them to do the work that they did. So be careful what you wish for, because you might get it. You know, be, be thankful for the journey, not the golden destination. And realize that the adversity that you struggle through, you know, may be the thing that gives you definition and maybe the thing that most strengthens and builds your character. So enjoy the resistance, enjoy the struggle uh, before you get there. That's beautiful. And I think it, uh, like we could create a parallel between this and the universe. Like um, the universe is always expanding and it's not about getting to a certain point in which it has perfectly expanded and it has nothing to do from there on. But it's, mm-hmm. it's in constant motion and it's constantly growing and becoming even more beautiful from many different ways, from uh, many different points of view. I, I, I wanted to ask you at the end of our time together, where can our audience find you? Where can they uh, find your book, your podcast? Yeah, so my book is available in you know, most bookstores in, in America or on Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble or Google Play Store. If you're overseas, uh, there is a uh, UK edition coming out in a couple of months. I believe you can get the digital you know, ebook for, version on the usual places where you can get such things. And, uh, and then the other way to keep in touch with me is via my mailing list which is available at my uh, website, which is just briankeating.com. And I'm pretty active on Twitter and YouTube. I don't, um, I don't do much on Facebook uh, or Instagram or anything like that. But, uh, but my Twitter is dr. Dr. Brian Keating, D-R-B-R-I-A-N-K-E-A-T-I-N-G. And that's my YouTube channel also. So you can find me there. I put out a lot of videos. Uh, and also my podcast is uh, available, you know, episodes of the podcast are available through there as well. And that's Into the Impossible podcast. Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you so much for being here with us and for sharing so many fascinating ideas and uh, for sharing your own experiences. Thank you so much. Ah, it's my, my pleasure. And thank you so much for having me on. Hey, Gratitude Seeker. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this interview. I really appreciate it. And if you could think of one person that would also benefit from it, share it with them. It might actually be the inspiration that they need to make their day or maybe even their life much better. Thank you so much 
once again. This has been Georgian Benta. Don't forget to keep seeking and spreading gratitude.